everyone, and welcome back to the Talking to Change, a motivational interviewing podcast. This is the fifth episode in our series, and uh, my name is Sebastian Kaplan from Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and wanting to welcome my good friend from Northern Ireland, Glenn Hines. Hello, Glenn. Hey, Seb. Hi, everybody. So uh, very happy to, to be back again today. I, I think we have a, a very interesting uh, podcast planned for you all, and we'll introduce our guest in uh, just a couple of minutes. But uh, Glenn, maybe we could start us off with, uh, with a discussion of some of the ways that people can access the podcast and reach the two of us. Sure, sure. Obviously, we're probably people are listening to us now on iTunes or Stitcher, uh, maybe on the site itself. But they can also follow us and make comments and ask questions uh, using our Twitter handle, which is at Change Talking. They can come and join us on Facebook at Talking to Change, or they can continue to email uh, comments and questions at podcast at glenhines.com. So let us know what you think. We're always happy to hear from you. Right. It's been uh, one of the exciting things about this whole process, Glenn, is the reach that we're trying to to have, I suppose, the the presence now on Twitter and Facebook, and uh, just hoping that the podcast is is really helpful for people, whether they're early learners, beginning learners, people that haven't ever heard about motivational interviewing, uh, or people that have been involved in MI work for many years, uh, just trying to trying to share what we know and what what interests us about MI. Absolutely, and and I know that today's conversation is going to be really interesting for a lot of people, and I'm really looking forward to it myself. Right. And so before we uh, introduce our guest, I just want to make a quick mention. Hopefully, I'm coming through louder and clearer on this fifth episode. I've had an upgrade in my microphone, so I, I do hope that's uh, leading to a more enjoyable experience so far. So hopefully that works out. For everybody yeah. and i know he's very proud of it to everybody i am yeah. yes, yeah. yes. I, I it, it, it is lovely it is lovely <laughs> i love my new microphone uh okay well so without further ado uh it's time to introduce our guest uh our guest is chris wagner who is an associate professor department vice chair and licensed clinical psychologist at virginia commonwealth university in richmond virginia Chris's work involves teaching, training, and supervising master's level counselors and other health professionals, and providing therapy to adults with a range of health, mental health, and addiction issues. His scholarship focuses on motivational interviewing and interpersonal processes in mental health and substance abuse treatment. Over the years, he has explored a variety of issues related to MI, such as the use of MI, focusing on internal changes such as identity, self-acceptance, and values, the role of positive emotions in motivational interviewing, and the use of MI in group formats. Along with Karen Ingersoll, Chris wrote the Guilford Publishing Series book on MI in groups, and he's also been an active contributor to the Motivational Interviewing Network of Trainers for the past 20 years. Welcome, Chris. Hey, thanks a lot, guys. Nice to be here. I've really enjoyed listening to the, the first couple of your podcasts that I've heard so far and looking forward to hearing the others. Yeah. Really nice. Well, uh, thanks again uh, for joining us. We're really excited to have you. Um, and, you know, just to, I guess, cue the listeners a bit and, on the and sort of 
deciding what we'll talk about today. Um, Glenn and I, you know, we've had some back and forth about directions and uh, initially maybe thought we would go deeper into the MI spirit. And that's something I imagine we'll still talk about today. But we're, uh, one of the things we're, we're really interested to hear about is the links between motivational interviewing and the work of Carl Rogers, who is uh, really a, a pillar, not just in the mental health uh, world, but, but really in, in the delivery of healthcare around the world, I, I think it's fair to say. Um, so we're hoping to, to hear a lot about that. Uh, Glenn, some other, other thoughts about our direction for today? Yeah, well, obviously, we're very interested in Chris's work and the development of motivational interviewing and group work, and that reference to that internal change process, which resonates with a bit about what Stan was talking about the last time, about that notion of self-compassion, maybe tease that bit out about the internal change that an individual makes rather than just the behavioral changes that 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 many of us as practitioners and may, many of the audience will be thinking about it in relation to the work that they do. So, you know, there's a lot of interesting directions we can go on today, so looking forward to it. Well, maybe, we, Chris, if you could just orient some of the listeners. I imagine many of the listeners know about Carl Rogers, know who he was, but uh, maybe if, you know, hard to do in just a couple minutes, right? But sure. maybe you could just provide the listeners with some, <laughs> uh, a brief background on Rogers and his work. Sure. Um... I'll start with I'm no uh, Rogers scholar. I certainly know many people who uh, are in the client-centered therapy world, developing offshoots and and working through his material. At, you know, so I'm not at that level. But Rogers' work has been a big inspiration to me. Like I think a lot of us, certainly uh, Bill Miller and Steve Rolnick were inspired by it along the way. My own connection to Rogers came kind of second link there, which is my mentor in graduate school um, was a postdoc with Rogers back when um, Rogers and his group did their study of using client-centered therapy with people with schizophrenia. And um, so he, uh, unfortunately, my, my mentor, Don Kiesler, was in the loop at the most challenging point of Roger's career, when um, a study uh, kind of fell apart, the research team fell apart, um, there were uh, multiple conflicts that ended up with lawsuits between the members of the research team, et cetera. And it's the point at which Rogers kind of left uh, the therapeutic world behind, moved to California and really started focusing on education, group work, and eventually political and social issues. Um, so my initial exposure to Rogers was through a guy who'd been uh, a bit traumatized by his experience with, with Rogers. And so um, it was kind of an interesting way to come to it. Of course, before graduate school, like many people, I'd heard of Rogers, you know, both as undergraduate and I got my practice career uh, started in a crisis setting doing suicide intervention work and crisis counseling. Um, and of course, much of that work for paraprofessionals or, or just um, non-professional helpers is Rogerian based with the idea that at the times of crisis, what people often need is just a connection to another person. And that this particular way of interacting with people um, is good at facilitating that connection. 
you know, doesn't get too lost into people's stories and uh, trying to solve things. And it really is helpful in crisis work. So that was kind of my first exposure to it. Um, I think the thing that that strikes me about Rogers is he was really a radical um, change in the development of psychotherapy. This third uh, wave model, third uh, force model um, that Rogers developed along with other humanists was really a contrast of both the psychodynamic and the behavioral models that were predominant when he came in, both of which had very different takes on people, um, but both of which cast the professional as an expert on understanding things about people, uh, either they're un unconscious in the you know, psychodynamic world or about aspects of their behavior um, that were outside of their awareness often. Both of these models cast the professional as being an expert who had that expertise to provide to clients that came in to work with. And Rogers really was a radical departure, I think, of um, taking the stance that um, I can't be an expert on another human being. Um, I can't know what's going on inside them, how they uh, see the world, how they see themselves, how they relate to others. And so on that um, end of things, which Rogers conceptualizes the most important part of helping people change, um, on that end of things, I can't be an expert, and my job is to really take a, kind of a one-down position and and step inside people's world and really just get to know them. Um, to my way of thinking, that's still really radical perspective at this point. Hmm. Um, we live in a world that's very technological, that's very time-sensitive, goal orientation, get things done, and... MI, which we'll get around to, I think is a, is a nice uh, hybrid of, you know, having that goal-oriented efficiency while keeping this um, kind of curious mind, beginner's mind almost, about people and who they are. Um, and I, th I think that's still radical. I think we still are in a place where, where culturally and just maybe as human beings, we see ourselves as having the answers for other people's problems. Mm -hmm. Wow. So not just in the, in the therapy room, so to speak, but, but just really from a, just a broader cultural perspective, it, you think that, or you see Roger's work and ideas as, as, as you say, a, a radical departure from what the norm is. Yeah. Well, I mean, the question he had when it came to sociocultural political issues was what if people actually listen to each other? What if our leaders of countries actually sat down and tried to understand one another's perspectives? Um, not to go too far in that direction at this point, but it, it really is, a, a, I think, a radical re-envisioning of how humans can, can work together, can interact with one another. Yeah. So it's that simplicity almost that he's inviting us to do, that the human connection and the radical nature of it is it, it's recognizing how how much hard work we have to do to keep things that simple. Mm -hmm. How hard it is not to retreat into inside our own heads. Yeah. Mm. Get yeah. clever, think of all these ideas, and then try to push them on other people. Well, that's. I a, think it's just a natural impulse that we yeah, have. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's a really interesting way you describe it. That tendency to retreat back into ourselves. And in, in some ways, that's it. it. 
it's a lovely invitation to me and I think maybe to the audience as well as to maybe to begin to recognise how do we do that or when do we do that and and what does that mean and there's the opportunity for us to learn there's the trigger I'm going back into myself how do I no. stay out how do I stay out how do I stay out how do I stay interested in the other how do I listen and just along those lines too since some of our well uh, many of our audience members I imagine are certainly learning about MI, but they also might be learners in a formal sense. They may be students or graduate students, whoever. And well, I guess I'll speak for myself. That was something that was common as a student. I almost had to go into myself a bit and try to actively put into practice the things that I was learning. So it, it might be interesting to, at some point today, to talk about the learning of MI and how how one can go into oneself, but also not lose sight of the other person at the same time. That it's it's really a process of being with someone, uh, being in something together. Um, and again, that I think was a radical reformulation of the the work of helping, and remains so. Yeah, good. Just thinking a little bit more about Rogers and and just some of this specifics that he shared with the world and shared with to, certainly the world of psychotherapy and counseling, but, but even to the world of healthcare. Uh, what, what would you say, Chris, are some of the sort of key ideas that he, he, he brought to us, shared with us? Well, I, we can get into the content in just a minute. The, you know, I think this, this essence, the NMI we call spirit, the spirit of MI is in my view, Roger's greatest gift to us as helpers. Um, and obviously it's been tweaked, it's been honed, it's been uh, worked with. But he, he and people who worked with him contributed this idea that techniques are not really where it's at, or at least they're, they're too easy to focus on, and that there's something that might even be unmeasurable about the way people experience being together that is healing in and of itself. And I think that's a big contribution. On kind of a, a geeky, technical, nerdy kind of note, um, Rogers was the first person to open up the consulting room, the, the therapeutic room, to recordings, uh, which then they could conduct studies on. So prior to that point, most of what um, therapists and counselors did was behind closed doors and they would come out and give their own summary of it. And Rogers was really committed to this idea that while he may have strong beliefs about what's useful for people, um, that it's got to be checked, right? That you've got to, no idea that you have is going to be completely correct, that embedded in any theory or any notion that you have about how things work, there are unknown and maybe unknowable things but to, to some extent, we've got to check those out and then change what we do based on the data we get. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's been a big con contribution to MI and the way that uh, MI has developed over the years, um, more based on data and input, sometimes formal like research data, other times um, data just from lots of practitioners trying this stuff out with different clients and then giving feedback on it. Uh, but to use that as a development for moving MI forward 
uh, more as the base uh, than theory and developing a, a comprehensive theory and then applying it to people, which is really how most other approaches um, developed. What Rogers was doing there, either implicitly or explicitly, was in some ways modeling his own willingness to be vulnerable to the examination mm -hmm. of, of his, himself and uh, to allow other people to check what it was he was doing, which in some ways mirrors the very essence of what it is we're doing in our contacts with clients. And mm -hmm. that there's the being with. Yeah. Oh. And, and he's a human being, so he had his own limitations and defenses and some things he wouldn't allow uh, really direct challenging of, like this notion of unconditional positive regard, um, which you know some people working with him and since questioned whether that is truly therapeutic in all moments. But he was open enough to let uh, his own students and others have access to recordings of his work to do their own research on them and then to publish things that contradicted his beliefs, right? So one uh, student, Truax, ended up publishing uh, a series of papers demonstrating how Rogers, despite claiming to be non-directive, was actually quite directive in his work with people, that he intentionally chose certain elements to focus on, ignored other things, and that what he focused on seemed to be more in line with his theoretical beliefs than what the client was, was kind of putting forward. And I think that's a good modeling of the kind of openness that we need in order for things to get better. Right. It, it's certainly consistent with the scientific rigor that he brought to the field and, and the idea that, you know, any idea should be questioned and, and thought about and written about. And yeah, it, just great to hear those, those ideas or those, uh, the points that you're making there about his openness in, in doing that. It's a, it's a, certainly a lesson for any of us to be okay with the notion that we may not have all the answers and no matter how much experience we might have, we can mess up a session or say something that we wish we didn't say or do something better the next time, that it, it's just all part of a, a growth experience for us. And, and that our dearest beliefs that we hold on to, if we really want to keep improving ourselves, we have to allow those to be open to question and to let go of them. The way we've done things, as good as it seems, isn't necessarily the best way. Right. So, so in terms of the core contribution to psychotherapy or counseling in particular, most people are familiar with what's summarized as the three core conditions that Rogers um, says are necessary and sufficient for good helping. You know, and those are that the therapist experiences unconditional positive regard for the client or patient that they're working with, that they take an empathic stance and really try to understand the other person's perspective, and that they're congruent or genuine in the relationship. And those two uh, words have a bit of different meaning and they evolved over time. Uh, but these are what are often known as the, referred to as the Rogers three core conditions, even though interestingly, he never claimed there were three core conditions. That was other people's summary of this. He mm -hmm. actually um, said there were six conditions that were necessary for good counseling. And the other three kind of get ignored along the way. Uh, they're, they're known sometimes as the hidden conditions or the, the background conditions, right? Uh -huh. And I think I want to mention these just because I think they're relevant to MI. So the, the other things that he mentioned were in order for therapeutic personality to change to happen, because of course he was focused more on personality than 
the more behavioral action focus that MI has. Um, he said two people need to be in psychological contact. In the room, there needs to be a connection, a mental, emotional, um, spiritual, if you will, if that's your way of thinking, connection between the two people in order for change to happen. That it can't be two people showing up a room and kind of each saying their own thing. But there's, there's something that uh, happens between them that is different than what each of them are doing alone. So that's one bit. The second bit is that the client needs to be in a state of incongruence or incongruence. And in Roger's theory, that's a little complex, but essentially what it means is that the person is in a state of feeling vulnerable or anxious because they kind of have two parts of them inside themselves that aren't in sync with each other. Now, Roger's talked about different ways that could be, but his core um, notion was around this unconditional positive regard element. And the, the essence was somebody's incongruent with themselves or they have two parts that are incongruent with each other because as they were growing up, developing, some parts of them were rewarded and other parts were punished, right? And so his view was over time, people get this sense where not all of me is okay. And so I have to hide parts of me from other people. And that as that goes on long enough, they start to hide those parts from themselves also, right? And so, you know, his sense was people don't feel really comfortable in their own skin because of this, this sense that they had positive regard that was very conditional. You do, you do the things we ask you to do, we like you, you go your own way against our, our um, direction and uh, we punish you or you get removed or, you know, something and it doesn't feel good. So those are those two elements really set up, I think, then the, the core conditions and the 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 final one, the sixth one, after the ideas of congruence, uh, unconditional positive regard and empathy is that the client perceives the unconditional positive regard and empathy. And I think this is something that's also um, overlooked at times when people think about why well, did a reflection and it didn't work. You know, I did this stuff and it didn't work. Well, my questions were, you know, were you really in contact with the person and did they perceive what you were doing? Did they take it in? Right. And those first three are the ones that, that people can rattle off quite often, right? Unconditional positive regard in particular. I feel like that's something it, it, we may have even uh, mentioned that in a previous episode, I think, Glenn. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, I'm really glad you introduced these other, the three hidden conditions for, for the audience to, to think more about. Glenn, what, what are you thinking? Yeah, I'm just fascinated by what Chris is describing, what you're describing there, Chris. And, you know, again, deepening my understanding of the three core conditions with that, the hidden ones, and particularly the last one where, again, it's about my perception of the client's experience of being with me. Am I connected enough for me to notice when what I'm doing isn't working for them? Or is it a case of I'm going through the motions I'm doing all the right things in inverted commas and it doesn't seem to be working and it seems like in some ways Rogers was encouraging us to recognize just by paying attention, by being with someone, the messages that an individual are communicating to us are coming through the verbal but very importantly through the non-verbal and that connectedness potentially at an emotional level as well that, that can I hear them at those three levels and pay attention and 
try to understand what's happening for them in my effort to assist them overcome this this incongruent experience of themselves to be more like who they really know themselves to be. That the essence of the unconditional positive character is that no matter how they're behaving, that their experience of being with us is our acceptance of them, that we're not judging them on their behaviour. We're endeavouring to experience them as a human being, just like us, who is manifesting because of their experiences before meeting us. Yeah, the, the, the essence of the message that I want clients to get is it's okay who you are, right? And let me help you get congruent with yourself. Let me help you get over these internal conflicts you have where some part of you is not acceptable and fights with another part and get over these, these things about yourself that you're embarrassed or ashamed about that you try to hide from other people. In this relationship, let's just let it all out. We're a couple human beings. We're complex people. It's okay. You have human emotions. You have defenses. It's all okay. This mm-hmm. is the way we are as people. And just the, so the idea with, uh, as I understand when I'm really working Rogerian spirit is just to help the person kind of relax, let their defenses down and kind of let it all come together. These things that they've kept compartmentalized in their mind or their experience. Mm. And again, the invitation seems like that's only ever going to feel safe for the individual if they are experiencing your unconditional positive regard and acceptance of them for themselves. That it's mm-hmm. not just a notion, it's, it's an experience of being mm-hmm. with you. And, the, and Roger says in order to do that, I need to be congruent, right? So I need to not be playing a role. I need to be as much of a human being when I'm in a counseling room with a client as I am when I'm with my partner or my best friend or my family, I really need to be fully present. Um, and while I may have experience and expertise, even that I can help the person with on some specific issues, I'm not taking the role of an expert. I'm not taking the role of a professional with these big boundaries up around me. It, to me, it, it gets almost pretty radical of saying we need to deal with our own stuff first, right? Now, none of us are going to be perfect human beings. But I know that as a therapist, when I'm going through really challenging times in my life, it's not that I can't provide good therapy, but it takes more work, right? Part of being in crisis is being in conflict with yourself and having these internal struggles. And those need to be somewhere else, not with me when I'm in the room with the person. Right. And I guess speaking of that state of incongruence, as you mentioned maybe this will kind of lead us into where Rogers links up with MI and how it might do that. I, I imagine a challenge that is apparent for, uh, for clinicians is, well, if, if we take the idea that clients are, or that humans are often in a state of incongruence, that, that we all at some level feel as if not all of me is okay. And now someone comes to see a therapist for help, even in even if the therapist is, is trying to be as empathic as possible, it might be very easy to also put off the uh, the vibe that, well, you might be okay, but this thing that you're doing isn't okay, mm-hmm. or there's this behavior that really needs changing, and and it's so it's it's tricky waters if if we're trying to remain consistent with 
with Roger's concepts here and, and these conditions to not continue to trigger that state of incongruence uh, unwittingly. Mm-hmm. And, and since MI is so much about finding places to change, whether they're specific behaviors or broader concepts too, which we might discuss, I, maybe you could speak a little bit to that tightrope that practitioners need to walk and, and how we, we try to do that when we're doing motivational interviewing. Yeah. It's something that is difficult to resolve, right? This notion that uh, I'm trying to be person-centered, which means I'm really trying to operate in the frame of reference of the person that I'm working with. What I often think of is I get in the bubble with them, right? So as long as I'm outside of their bubble, of their perception of being in it with them, basically, if I'm outside of that bubble, then there's very limited things I can do without exacerbating a tension between us, without having them feel pressured or feeling misunderstood or in some way um, conditionally regarded. And so what I try to do is have them have the experience that I get in the bubble with them. So I get in their world. I'm really just trying to understand the best I can who you are, not just like what are the kind of surface ambivalence issues, like if you're trying to get more fit for your health or if you're trying to fix a relationship issue or you're trying to change a habit, but what's underneath that that may make that more difficult than it needs to be, right? So one of the things about MI is it tends to off, it tends to focus more on specific goals and specific uh, changes that we can kind of define what they are, track progress toward, and complete, right? And if somebody doesn't have a fundamental conflict underneath that, then that's that's great. But my own experience as a clinician, I'd love to hear yours, both of yours, um, is that a lot of people I work with find themselves circling back around to the same problems because, at least the way I understand it, because underneath that problem presents some more fundamental conflict for them, right? A way that they're trying to be, that they were told, um, you're not that good, you're not that kind of person, you can't do that, and they're struggling with that issue. Or a way they don't don't really want to be or don't agree with being, they were told this is how you need to be in order to be okay. And I know that's pretty vague, but a lot of times when I'm working clinically with people, that seems to me to be what's underneath relapse and recycling a lot. When there aren't those kind of fundamental conflicts, it's still hard enough to change a habit anytime. But when making a change in a habit means something about the person you're becoming is at conflict at a deeper level with something you believe you were supposed to be or not supposed to be, then it gets really difficult. Mm-hmm. And so for me, working with people, there is this conflict between being client-centered, person-centered, being in their world, in the bubble with them, and intentionally trying to have a goal and trying to work toward a goal that while some part of them may agree with it, a large part of them doesn't agree with it, right? Or doesn't want to do it, doesn't feel like they can do it, um, is in conflict with it. Um, And how to straddle that line of helping them both be who they are and also become a better version of themselves or have a better life than they're currently having without getting outside of the bubble and kind of trying to direct that process towards here's what you should do, here's where you should go, um, here's how you should go about it. The image that's coming up for me is that it's almost like you're describing be the 
the best version of our the parent that all of us ever wanted the the Waltons family you know the patient understanding considerate parent or carer who could see where we were trying to get to but also recognized our own limitations in our efforts to to achieve that for ourselves and recognize why we would move away f- move away from an old behavior yet come back to it because of some of the benefits even in inverted commas a negative behavior the benefits that that an individual will experience from drinking alcohol or taking drugs without making a judgment about that being a bad decision. It's about understanding Mm -hmm. that decision makes sense for you. I'm curious about why that decision makes sense for you to help you understand why it makes sense for you so that you can make a different choice with informed insight. The next time you want to move away from it, you know why you want to go back to it without again experiencing that sense of judgment from anyone else other than yourself. And it's resolving that internal judgment that an individual may be experiencing. Yeah. So, you know, the, I don't have the exact quote in mind, but the Rogers quote about um, the curious thing is that the more I accept myself, the more I'm able to change. That's not an exact quote, but pretty close to this, this notion that when people have these internal conflicts, that storm inside themselves actually makes any sort of change difficult, right? That we have a belief that that should motivate change. And sometimes it does. People hit bottom and they, their eyes open and they, they move to a new way of being. But many times people get caught up in that uh, because they're not accepting themselves. Mm-hmm. So I take that for me as a therapist um, the same lesson is there that unless I truly accept and understand the other person, I probably am not going to be that helpful, uh, in helping them change, right? Mm-hmm. Until I really get why these pieces, uh, are like they are. And, and sometimes I get it, a cognitive understanding of the person, but sometimes it's just a feeling of like, yeah, I, I really can experience what it's like to be stuck in this mode. Mm-hmm. And that until I can get that, it's hard to to then um, have contact with them or connect with them in a way that helps inspire them towards change. Right. And just reflecting on recent clients that I've worked with and this notion of, I guess, the, the different layers, there's the sort of change targets or, you know, using your coping strategies to deal with this or find replacements for, say, cutting or other self-injurious behavior. And even even young people, uh, even as young as 13, 14 years old, will, if I'm fortunate enough to have that psychological contact, I think, as you, as you described, Chris, you can hear some really profound comments from them and, and concerns and worries about what doing something different would mean for them and what, what kind of, uh, I suppose, trust in themselves, trust in the people around them, trust in the future that, you know, that, that they'll be able to handle the things that are coming their way. And it's, it can be easy to sort of lose sight of that or just gloss over some of those deeper worries in, in the search for reducing the frequency of X behavior or Y behavior. Yeah. So. And, and I think one of the things that MI has really contributed to this approach is to say that, okay, those things may be going on and maybe we could deal with them, but we don't necessarily have to, right? 
that if what you want and right now what's going to help you move to toward a better future and in the direction you want is to focus on a discrete habit or a discrete uh, change in your life and get momentum going and get you moving forward, we can do that, right? So I think one of the, the one of the ways I think about Rogerian client-centered therapy, these core conditions that, that he talked about, um, he talked about them as being necessary and sufficient, right? So you really have to have, in his view, empathy, unconditional positive regard, and congruence or genuineness. Um, and his view, those were necessary and they were also sufficient. If you have those things, you don't need to do techniques. You don't need to set goals. You don't need to make plans that just those conditions being present in the relationship will foster therapeutic change. Um, and I think where MI comes in is with this idea that even if Rogers is right on these things, that those core conditions are necessary and sufficient, that doesn't necessarily mean they're efficient, right? And that one of the changes from Rogers' time to ours um, seems to be much more time pressure, much uh, greater need for us therapeutically to get more done with limited time. Uh, in the limited time compared to what was um, really thought of as a normal therapeutic uh, process in the 60s and 70s. Um, and I think what MI says is we can be as efficient as you need. And if what you need is you want to get yourself uh, more fit, you know, get more active, change your eating habits, change an addiction uh, behavior, we can just focus on those things. Um, in this, in this same core way that Rogers worked, just by tweaking the work a little bit, narrowing the focus a little bit and focusing more on getting momentum established, moving toward a goal, um, so more of a forward progress uh, versus Rogers' approach from which, which was more of a deepening, deepen into yourself, become congruent, and then we've done our work and going forward, you do whatever you want with your life. Mm. Um, and. And I don't see those things as being uh, conflicting with each other in any way. Um, it's just a different therapeutic focus in a moment. So one of the things I, I know I'm talking a lot here, but one of the things I like about MI is this notion of how it fits in stepped care, that what's, you know, what's the, the most minimal intervention you can do that will achieve the, the maximum output for this person. Start there and then from there add skills learning, you know, skills or deepen into more um, underlying personality work or whatever as needed, as opposed to start with this idea that what we really need to do is go in at a deep level and focus on personality change. And then from that, you'll have behavior change. Mm -hmm. So it, MI is a rather natural evolution in approach with the, some of the societal and systemic demands that therapists are now under and, and not just therapists. I imagine if you talk to healthcare providers, primary care docs, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't know if in the sixties primary care docs were talking about the, uh, the, the seven minute encounters or the, the demands, the intense demands of documentation that, that they do now. So everyone is under more time pressure and, and needing to do things more efficiently. And, and MI is an example of, of just a natural evolutionary process while maintaining some of the core tenets and also the, the scientific rigor that you mentioned and uh, hopefully ultimately being helpful to people. Mm -hmm.
Yeah, and I, I think that's um, what helps MI not just be a psychotherapy, right? So I'm a psychotherapist. I tend to think of things in that way, but also work in a medical setting, and I, and I do a lot of work that's MI-based that I wouldn't consider psychotherapy. And the nice thing about the MI model to me is like it's like an accordion. You can stretch it out or, or push it together uh, as you need for the, search, the situation that you're in and for what the person is looking for help with. Right. Glenn, where yeah, would you like to go next? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm just again. I love that metaphor of the of the accordion and Denver, that the opportunity for the practitioner to either stretch or push the focus of their conversation again with the client in mind. And it, from what you're what you're saying, Chris, is it fits with something that I'm experiencing here in the UK, which seems to be there's a shift in the helping paradigm towards the strengths focused or towards strengths-focused interventions. And in some ways that seems to suggest or represent an encouragement for practitioners to not simply try to resolve the negative emotions that a client or a patient may be experiencing, but to shift towards focusing their positive emotions. And I was wondering what your thoughts are, the difference between perhaps uh, attending to negative or positive emotions in a conversation with someone. Sure. Um, this is a big focus for me, actually. Um, and it relates to, I mean, a number of overlapping issues, positive versus negative or negatively experienced emotions, um, a deficit versus a competence model, strengths focus versus problems focus. Um, and these pieces all, I think, overlap and, and, and relate to each other. Um, to some degree, I think it, it goes back to uh, our core philosophy about helping and what is it that we're trying to do when we interact with people, right? And what um, we're often drawn to think about is problem solving, right? A person, people rarely show up to my work, I don't know about yours, uh, saying to me, you know, I'm really interested in self-growth and what I'm here for is to, you know, try to become more actualizing and to try to feel more fulfilled and really live the life that I'm meant to live. That can be in the message somewhere, but generally people show up with problems. This is a problem for me. This isn't working. I'm stressed out about this. My relationship is going to end unless I change that or you know, some aspect of society, I worked with a lot of people, criminal justice referrals, some aspect of society says, I can't be like this, I got to do something different. And I'm here because I have to be. Um, so I think it's natural to be drawn toward taking that at face value, here's a problem. And let's try to solve it. So even in, uh, in the kind of a core MI model of ambivalence and, and looking at what's change talk and sustain talk, the, the notion is often that people have is like, how can I help somebody solve their problem by finding enough motivation to do something different from this? Um, and I think that's a good focus, but um, I think that the, the strengths perspective, the growth perspective, the competence perspective gives an alternative to that um, that we need to keep in our minds, or at least for me, I find it helpful to keep in my mind as I'm working with people that often the kinds of problems that I'm working with people, uh, on 
are things that are unlikely to go away, right? Mm -hmm. So I work with people with chronic depression. I would love to have help them to a life where they never have problems with depression. And I certainly will try to do that. And yet, um, I don't want to have an orientation where unless I achieve them or help them achieve having no depression, I haven't helped them. Right. Mm -hmm. And so while there's some, in my thinking, some direct focus on a problem, there's a whole other way of focusing that I've found therapeutically useful with people. And that's to focus on, um, what's outside of that problem for you. Right. So, so when I'm working with people, often uh, I think of it when they show up and we're first working together, their problem's right in their face, right? And it takes up their whole field of vision. It's kind of all they can see, all they can talk about. And of course, they don't like that. They don't want that thing in their face. They want to be able to see something else. So what they want is to take this problem that's, that's covering their field of vision and make it smaller so they can see around it. And that's good, and that's a, that's a helpful way to work with people. But the, the strengths and growth perspective says, in addition to that, what we can try to do is help them see the things in their life, the things about them as a person, the things in their relationship that are not a part of that problem, right? That, that some of the, the, the difficulties people have aren't the problem itself per se, but are their relationship to the problem and that they become too fused with this problem. It's they're ruminating over it, it's taking over their life. And that some of the way we can help people is just to kind of remember what about the other parts of you? Who are you outside of that problem? Um, what about the, you know, if you have a relationship that's that's in a downward spiral, what other relationships do you have that aren't that way? If you feel like you can't make a change or you're really unsuccessful, what are some things that you've done that have been successful? What are some strengths you have? What are, you know, things that help you get through hard times that when you look around at other people, they seem to struggle with, uh, even though you do okay with it. And so my thinking with that is, is what we're doing is helping people get grounded again in the best parts of themselves, um, that we're not creating this new person. It's just that part of what happens when, when people's clinical problems advance is they have this, you know, what's often called lifestyle narrowing but it's also a narrowing of cognitive focus to where the problem kind of takes over their life. And it's kind of just helping them reclaim the rest of their life. And my experience has been as we're able to do that, um, the problem itself objectively might be the same, uh, same intensity, same size, but the person it's kind of moved away from their face now. So it's not the only thing they can see. They can see the rest of themselves and as they get grounded in the whole of their being, they can bring those strengths and skills that they have to bear on this particular problem, right? So I don't know if that makes sense. It's hard to do it uh, without visuals here, but. In some ways, it sounds like you're describing then the practitioner's efforts to notice to the client, maybe some of the things that they're taking for granted about who they are, and, mm -hmm. and, and in an MA way, the, 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 the use of affirmations and just noticing how they are in the circumstances that they are on purpose, mm -hmm. noticing the efforts, the, the talents, the skills, the abilities that they're currently using to even just cope with this issue that's blocking their field of view. Mm -hmm. um, and 
again, the essence of that individual's manifesting in, I suppose, recognising that why would someone with this amount of difficulty want to continue? And that taps into a deeper strength of yeah. the human nature and just, again, just in a very gentle way, noticing that to them, that the efforts they're making to stay alive and is about the who, the, the vision of what life could be in a different place and how we help them begin to see that or work, identify ways of working around the problem or, as you say, just exp expanding their f field of vision so that the problem's still there but in the context of everything else about who they are and who they're with. Wow. So this is, this is you know, quite clearly, this is a conversation that could that I can certainly sit and talk to you for ages. <laughs> but I, again, I, I'm just curious, I'm just keen because there are a couple of other topics that we wanted to bring bring you towards, Chris. And it probably is related in some ways, but in one of your articles, uh, when, when you wrote your piece of Beyond Cognition, Broadening the Emotional Base of MI, you used the term emotional emancipation and it just sang to me and I just wondered, can you say a wee bit more about when you were writing that, what it was you were describing to us as a reader and now to us as the listeners? Yeah. So, so one of, one of the ways I think about MI is we talk about autonomy support, right? Um, I, for my own thinking, I really like that. And yet that's even a bit too weak for the way I want to think about autonomy. I really want to help people find freedom in their life, right? And not just support autonomy, but really help them find at the deepest level possible this sense of this is my life, right? I get to do with this life um, to a large degree as I choose. Now, of course, there are realities in everybody's life and the, the limitations that we have. Um, on freedom, but this gets kind of philosophical, but right, right, modern physics is at a point of saying we don't have free will. I don't agree with that, right? But what I do think um, is becoming clearer and clearer through neuroscience and physics is that our, our freedom is more limited than we often believe, right? That we, our brain is structured in such a way that it tries to automate as much as possible of life in order to keep energy to deal with new threats or new possibilities, things become automated. And um, so what I'm trying to do with MI is help somebody really find a freedom to be uh, more who they want to be and live the life that they want to live. Um, the way that fits together with the positive emotions is that positive emotions aren't just things that feel good, right? That make you kind of break the tension and make you happy, make you laugh. Um, they certainly serve that function, and I think that's important. Um, but Barbara Fredrickson's work on looking at positive emotions uh, biologically, as well as trying to look at them through an evolutionary psychology lens, um, suggests that positive emotions play a much more important role in our, our uh, mental health than, than we might give them credit for. That it's not just that they make you feel good in the moment, but that experience of, of joy or hope or excitement um, 
that sense of curiosity, that experience of wonder or awe, those things um, contribute to our functioning in that um, they open up our minds. They help us broaden our perspectives, right? So the, the theory about negative emotions is the kind of the fight or flight theory, right? Immediately, which is um, when we we're wired to perceive threats, when we perceive a threat, our cognition narrows to the focus of just noticing that car that's coming at us in the street, right? Um, and making sure that adrenaline kicks in and we jump out of the way, right? So anger brings people to want to fight. Um, fear brings them to want to flee or to hide, something like that. And the, the role of positive emotions was kind of left outside of psychological research for a long time because they didn't really seem to serve a purpose, right? other than as a break from the, the, the fight or flight kind of mechanism. But her research, I think, has been really helpful to look at how those positive emotions lead people to have increased openness to new experiences. I want to explore. I want to investigate. I want to imagine some new possibility. And that they also put people in a state where they're more likely to connect with other people and try to build resources together, right? So when you have a pot, when you're feeling good, you're more likely to get together with a neighbor or a friend and say, hey, can you help me with this? Or I could help you with that. And you do something together. And in collaboration, you build resources um, to help yourself for the next time of threat. And so to me, um, I try to intentionally bring that into the MI work, right? That I try to avoid thinking of the work I'm doing in cognitive terms of just trying to uh, reflect change talk and soften sustain talk. Those are aspects of what I'm doing. But what I'm really trying to do is have a deep emotional connection with the person to help them um, want, you know, have a positive emotion, which them helps them want to try to do something different, want to try to find something different and makes them feel safer to take chances, right? Because the, the issue with any sort of change is it's risky. And we don't know if we're going to be able to do it. We don't know if it's going to succeed. And if we're in kind of a negative uh, state emotionally, we're less likely to, to take those risks. And if we do take the risks, we're, we're quicker to give up than to push through. And so the work that I do, and this is particularly a focus in group work that I do with people, is really try to build as much positive connection and emotions as possible and work on um, inspiring people to take these leaps of faith and to try these new things um, that from the outside seem, you know, like really obvious if you just try that, sure, it might not go great the first time, but just keep trying, you'll get there. But from the inside um, is a huge leap for the person. So the positive emotions are, are almost, well, they, they serve many functions perhaps, but one is to prepare people for a, a broadening, for a, uh, uh, the, the, the possibility of growth as opposed to the negative ones, which tend to narrow and focus in on isolated threats and, mm -hmm. uh, and experiences that they might want to get rid of. Mm -hmm. And so with change being this, this uh, change can be narrow and specific too, but there is a, a looking forward, a, a need to see what life might be like something sort of much more beyond where they're at now. And, and so are you saying that, that that's the, the role, one of the roles that positive emotions has is prepares them from doing that. Yeah. And the, the idea of emotional emancipation to circle back around 
yeah. is this idea that the, the negative emotions that you have, which then relate to negative thoughts people tell themselves, these are kind of holding you in chains, right? Mm -hmm. They're enslaving you. Mm -hmm. And that what I want to do is help free you from that. And the process of that, I think, uh, at least my thinking was influenced a lot by Frederick's and broaden and build model, right? Mm -hmm. That the positive emotions broaden your uh, ability to, to conceptualize and they inspire you to build, you know, resources and new uh, opportunities for yourself. Um, where that fits in MI in particular is this notion of discrepancy and working with, with discrepancy that people have. And this is a core element of MI, um, this idea that how is your behavior um, not entirely fitting with your values as a person or how is your behavior not entirely fitting with the goals that you have? And so some of what MI has always done is work with that discrepancy as a motivator for people. Um, what I want to do when I'm using that is to make sure that I'm using it in both a positive as well as a negative way. But I think it's easy to look at discrepancy and think about um, when psychology is called a negative reinforcement model, right? That you become uncomfortable with some aspect of yourself and you want to get away from that. So it's, it's it motivating you to make a change, right? And I think that works pretty well with people my own experience when they're pretty intact, when they haven't had a lot of traumas along the way, or they don't have these deep kind of conflicts. If you have a pretty strong ego, a pretty strong feeling about yourself, then I think that negative discrepancy can help you go, oh, if I would just change this one thing, it'll get even, you know, off, it'll take care of this problem for me. My experience has been working with um, people with extended traumas, you know, and really trying to think of the work from a trauma informed perspective um, has been that that experience of discrepancy is overwhelming for some people. Like they already have such struggles inside themselves that to now add another thing that now we're noticing that I'm not doing in line with my values or goals is stressful to them. And, and instead of inspiring them to change, um, kind of locks them up. And so what I try to focus on is in addition to that, um, trying to develop this idea of positive discrepancy. So rather than asking people, how does this thing you're doing not fit with your values or, or how does this not fit with these goals, flip it around and ask the positive uh, question of, you know, how, okay, now that we've talked about this, how could you move even closer to your goals? How could you get up tomorrow and live even more in line with your values, right? So it's the same question, but it's, it's emphasizing that first of all, already most of what you're doing is in line with who you are as a person and what you want to do, and how can we just tweak it to get a little closer? And by framing it that positive way, my experience has been, it taps more into the positive emotions, right? Well, let me investigate that, let me think about that, let me give it a try. Um, rather than, you know, I can't stand to feel this way about myself anymore, so I have to change. Mm. So it's almost like you're saying, rather than asking someone how do I, how can i help you stop being like who you don't want to be how can i help you become more like who you want to be yeah wow exactly mm. exactly and it's the same question it's just putting a little different spin on it mm. right it's just putting the focus in a different place that um i mentioned this is particularly important when i do groups work um in that case it's because i've had too many experiences of 
when people are focusing on negative things in group, um, the group tends to get in this downward spiral, right? Let, oh, you think that's bad. Let me tell you about this, right? Or, oh, well, you did that. I did something even worse. Or, um, yeah, you really are pretty screwed up. I can't imagine. Wow. You know, this is not what I'm trying to do in a group, right? So in a group, what I really want to do is get the, the number one predictor for group outcomes is the level of cohesion between members, right? So how much are people connected? So back to Roger's first condition in psychological contact. In a group, what I really want is to have people have this sense that I'm not alone, right? And so by not being alone, I can maybe try some things new in my life, take some risks in my life that I didn't feel comfortable taking them when I'm alone, right? And so by fostering this experience, I'm part of a group. The group's got my back. I know they're on my side. I know they have support. I'll try something new. And um, for me, in order to make that happen in groups, it's helpful to focus on the positive. So to focus outside the problem area on strengths, successes, on connections between people in terms of their interests, their hobbies, their passions, the things they love in their life, right? So this positive vibe, this positive climate in the group. Um, and stay away from using a group to dissect everyone's problems in front of each other. Right. It, it, I think it adds some value to things that people who do groups might worry about sometimes, which with, you know, sort of chit chat or little relatively sort of shallow or minor points, like, you know, what's your favorite food or what's your favorite movie. But, uh, and I, I do groups as well. And I sometimes, have a little, you know, voice in my head that says, you know, you're not working on real stuff. And, but, uh, but I, I try to catch that and remind myself that, you know, a lot of the kids that are in this group never met each other before mm -hmm. that day. And, and what might seem like relatively benign or minor banter is, is actually efforts to, to develop that group cohesion. That's really vital for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And for me, I mean, what's, the essence of the difference between somebody doing well and somebody not doing so well isn't whether they have problems in their life or not, because we all have problems in their life, our lives, right? It's how, what's your capacity to deal with those? How do you, do they overwhelm you? Do they take you down? Do they make you feel bad about yourself? Are they things you go, eh, this isn't really the way I'd like it, and let me try to, you know, change it. Um, and so, I really try to avoid using groups to try to solve these problems and fix things. Um, and I personally rarely ask about problems or difficulties that people have. I know clients are going to talk about that anyway. So I want to keep my uh, focus on the positive, on the growth, on this sense of, you know what, my life really could be different than it is. Really in a fundamental way, I could be experiencing life different and I could be more comfortable going through life. Um, and that's, um, we talked earlier about this issue of behavior change versus broader or, or, or deeper change. Um, that's kind of the essence of it for me is, is, you know, what I'm trying to help people do at a core level is get to this point where, where someone feels like I'm living my life and, you know, the slings and arrows, I'll deal with them. Mm. Um, and, and I feel like much of what we're, at least I don't know about you, the, the work I do with people, 
is switching people from reactive to proactive mode is a major change for them, right? That it's not so much you're doing X and you should be doing Y, it's that you're getting up in life and kind of dealing with what it throws you, um, which you're gonna always have to do anyway, mm. but you're doing that uh, without getting up each day with the sense of here's what I'm trying to make happen today or here's what I'm trying to move toward. And I feel like that fundamental difference, my own sense, is a big difference between um, who experiences their life is going pretty well and who questions, you know, the, the nature of their life and, and how it's going. It's almost a difference between being an observer of your life or a full participant in your life and, and recognizing that, it, that who I am, warts and all, is being accepted by this individual or in the group. Uh, that and that by experiencing someone else except my warts and all gives me the space to move beyond those to see what else is what the the, the all is past mm -hmm. the warts and mm -hmm. um and the the humanizing experience of knowing we're all like that including the therapist uh, yeah. including our friends including our enemies including and that normalization of, you know, it's not just me that this is happening to, it's happening to other people in different ways, but we're all fighting the fight. Yeah. Um, and um, so let's let's get on with doing it together and if at all possible, enjoying it while we're at it. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a really, so, again, so, a really yeah, positive like, message. Yeah. Whether we're working one-on-one -on -one or in a group of people, there's this sense of like, you don't have to be perfect to be okay. Mm. Right? We're all people. We all got some things we do well and some things well, we haven't quite mastered yet. It's <laughs> not that big of a deal. It, sure, it hurts. Mm. Sure, it's really hard to deal with some of the things that life gives us. Um, but you've got what it takes. Mm. So let's, you know, let's find that together. So, yeah. Which I imagined and just reflecting on some clinical examples myself and, and yours as well, um, that that in and of itself is a, a sort of target, so to speak, that, that for a person to sort of step back away from the problems in front of their face and, and, and that sort of focus, there may be a, a, a reluctance, ambivalence, if you will, on, for a person to see that in themselves. And, and maybe that's a place that you use MI to, to engage someone in that conversation to, to be more accepting of themselves, to, to be okay with themselves, even if they're not perfect. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my own, again, my own sense of MI is it can work um, at different levels. And so I'm really happy with kind of the expansion of the tent pegs of MI that have happened in the last several years. It's something that I've, I've advocated for and been interested and in, tried to use in my practice for some time. Um, you know, that sure, we can work on a discrete behavior change. We can also bundle together a number of behavior changes and work on a larger goal, like recovery is a whole bunch of changes, right? It's not just quitting drinking. There's a lot more that goes into it than that but we can lump those together into a larger uh, title of recovery. Mm. Um, and in addition to that, we can also go deeper and we can bundle get together um, changes that uh, 
fundamentally impact how the person perceives themselves and experiences their own life. Um, and it doesn't mean we have to do that or they have to do that, but it's an opportunity that we have when we're working with people. And it's one I'm, I'm always kind of open for. Um, my, I don't know if you guys have read the quantum change book that uh, Bill and Janet Sitabaka did, uh, but it's a, uh, it's a bunch of stories about people whose lives had these moments of epiphany and after which their lives and how they experienced them, the world and how they experienced themselves as people were never the same again, right? And there was this fundamental sense that I took away from all these stories that not only did people feel released from some chains that they had and feel free, but that looking back, they can't imagine ever going back to being the person they used to be. Like something at a core level switched. And, you know, that's still who they were and how, you know, what they went through, but it's no longer who they are. That's really the essence of what I'm shooting for when I'm doing MI. Can't get it all the time. A lot of times can't even get close, but I'm always looking for that opportunity to, to help somebody change a behavior, sure, but then use that behavior change as a way to kind of reclaim their life and, and get a healthier relationship with themselves. Yeah. Wow. Great stuff. I, you know, like Glenn, you mentioned just a while ago, we could go on and on here and uh, just keeping an eye on the clock. And we, we do want to wrap up here probably in a couple of minutes. Uh, Chris, one thing that we want to invite guests to do and share a bit is uh, any current interest or any any particular thing, either a paper that you're writing, a, a study that you're uh, participating on, or a new idea that you're kicking about. Any sure. thoughts about that? Sure, I'll just I'll tell you a couple. So yeah. one quick one is I've been working a lot with dentists the last few years, right? <laughs> so MI in dentistry is an interesting thing because it's one of those frames that seems like it could be very, uh, you know, very surface and not very important. And yet, as I'm working with dentists, discovering that they are often the first people to identify, for example, domestic violence, right? So somebody doesn't want to turn a, a domestic partner in, isn't ready to leave, they still want to deal with the injuries to their teeth if they've been punched in the face, right? And um, a number of other issues. It's been just really interesting to, to kind of step outside of um, the world that I've been in, which is psychotherapy and then the medical world of really dealing with people dealing with chronic diseases into this other world. Uh, I'm, I'm working now with Karen Ingersoll on um, trying to come up with the next version of our, our group uh, model. Uh, we've had, it's assess, in essence, 20 years since we first started working on this and now getting close to 10 since we did the core uh, theoretical work that, that ended up being the, the book that we put out through Guilford. And there have been a number of developments, um, largely not our own, largely things other researchers are doing and little tweaks that people are finding that uh, are making groups more efficient and more um, helpful. And so it's time to, to kind of update that and bring that in. Um, and the last thing where my heart's really at right now is I'm um, experimenting around with how I do in my training, right? And uh, for these last few years, I've been kind of building to this point of getting more client-centered in my training, more person-centered in my training, and trying to do it in a more organic way. So the, 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 what I'm trying to do there is avoid 
something I've struggled with as a trainer, which is let me start with giving you this model that's outside of your head and this jargon that you need to learn and these concepts that have words that, that aren't a part of your everyday language. And then now that I've taught you all that, let's learn how to do it and get you to recognize the parts of it you already do, right? So that's kind of the essence of the way I had trained for years. And so what I'm really um, excited about now is trying to flip that around and do trainings that are much more organic in nature. Um, they tie back to the original thing you were talking about with the spirit uh, we, that we thought we were going to focus on today in that I focus a lot on the MI spirit and helping people get in that mode. Um, you know, Bill Miller once said, uh, MI is 80% Rogers. It was just an off the cuff kind of comment, but I've always stuck with that because when I think about that, um, I think about how do I want to use that to guide my training? Well, I don't want to spend 80% of my time with people on the 20% technical part that's been added to, to, to the kind of client centered way of relating to people. Um, and just assume that the 80% that people can already do, if I just tell them the words and, you know, give them a few minutes on that, now let's get onto the technical things. And so what I've done is tried to flip that around and set up a series of experiences that are first designed for the, the trainees to um, get in sync with themselves, right? To get grounded, to really get clear, get to that place of the beginner's mind. I don't call it mindfulness, but we use mindfulness um, elements to just really get people out of their heads and into their experience. And then a number of series of pairing them with people and setting up tasks that essentially require them to do MI kind of work um, without teaching the, the lingo or the jargon of MI, right? So um, sit down and have a conversation uh, with your partner about something that they uh, feel like other people don't understand about them or people always misunderstand about them. And your job is to really try to understand both that thing about them as well as what their experience with other people's been, right? So this is setting up empathy or setting up a, a conversation with people of, so your job here is to talk with your partner about something that, um, they feel pressured to do that they don't want to do, or they feel constrained or held back from doing something that they want to do in the, in the world or their job or somebody doesn't want them to. And your job now is to have a conversation in which you help them find autonomy, find freedom, find a way to kind of work out of that conundrum. And the limitation is you can't give them any suggestions. So the, what, I, what I'm excited about now is trying to set up these trainings to give people the experience of conversations that are very natural and organic, but that fit with the MI model, and that once they kind of have that in them, then we can top off with the, the, the theoretical concepts and the, the way we label it specifically in MI. I do think it's important that people learn that if, you know, so they don't walk away going, I think I learned something, but I don't really know what it is. Right, right. 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 But my experience has been when I can use that as the top off, once you've kind of already got it, um, my experience, again, I don't have data on this, but is that it's moving people to, to uh, moving their skills forward quicker and moving them to a deeper understanding mm. quicker than when I used to focus specifically on skills development. Mm. 
So that's so just something, I mean, that's a nerdy thing, but something I'm yeah. excited about right now and playing around with. Sure, yeah. Something, uh, you know, all of us are part of this group, the Mint, as, as we had mentioned in an earlier episode. And so we're all trainers at some level, whether we're clinicians or researchers or whatever else. But uh, so I, that, that's, I imagine that's a very common experience for many of us to, to be thinking and reflecting on how can, how can we do things better and differently and how can we evolve as trainers ourselves and with the content that we provide and with the experience for our, our trainees. Yeah. Um, well, Glenn, what do you think? I, I think we're about close to wrap up time. Any last words, any final comments? Oh, to be honest, I wish it wasn't ending because like even in the last few minutes, so much has just come up and, uh, yeah. But I, th I think it's consistent with what it is. I understand Chris has been saying today is that that momentum is itself one of an outcome of itself. That um, the I am definitely leaving here with so much to think about and so much to chew over and to reflect on in relation to my own practice and one to one work, but also as a trainer and my understanding of motivational interviewing in the relationship it has with Rogers. Um, so I'm really grateful for that, Chris. I'm really grateful for for the the time that you've given us today, and and the energy that it's that's now created for me and my heart and my mind about you know to go away and you know this is a lot of really interesting stuff, and and I and I hope that the audience got as much from it as I did. Um, so yeah, thank you. Well, thank you. I and I do think. Um, so much of, of what we can do with people is just really connect with them, you know, help them envision the better future and get excited about moving toward it, you know, despite any difficulties that, that may be there. And um, I guess I felt some pressure to get a lot of that stuff in today, the details. So I probably got uh, going a bit fast there. But really, when I work with people, the idea is just to remember to breathe and give people the experience of let's be together, right? Mm -hmm. And let's just move this forward a little bit with mm -hmm. whatever time we've got. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, yeah. so I, I really appreciate the, uh, the chance to talk with you guys today. Yeah. Well, it's a great place to kind of loop back to. And uh, yeah, I'll echo everything Glenn said. It's been uh, great talking with you today, Chris. And we, we very much appreciate it. Uh, Thanks again. Uh, so, Glenn, maybe. You could also remind the audience once again all the ways that the audience can get in contact with us and to access the podcast. Hmm. Alongside of that, perhaps it, it's, it might be useful if, if Chris, you're open to audience, oh, yes, audience participants um, to maybe reach out to you or maybe how they can access more of what it is you're doing. If, if people, if you were happy for people to contact you, how would they go about doing that? Yeah, probably the best way is email. So my email address is chrisccwagner at gmail.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-C-W-A-G-N-E-R uh, at gmail.com. Like a, a lot of us, I'm on the road and busy, so uh, I get back to people as soon as I can. Hit me up a second time if, if you got buried under an avalanche of email, which happens to, I think, many of us. Um, but yeah, I'm... I'm I'm wide open to sharing thoughts and, and even more importantly for me, hearing thoughts of Great. other people have. Good. Yeah. And are you, are you a, a Twitter man or a, 
Are you a social media man that people can follow I, I, you? I'm, I'm in a simplification mode <laughs> okay. of even not even carrying a cell phone with me for a lot large, large period of days. Just okay. uh, like a lot of us, I think I, I started to get have my, you know, everything get chopped up. So right now I'm not tweeting or Instagramming mm. or. An interesting example yeah. for perhaps for a lot of us to think about. And while we're processing and considering that we are still open to the the contact from the client so we we do have a twitter channel which is at change talking our facebook is talking to change come along it's a like page press the thumb and the email is podcast at glennhines.com great well uh, as always we invite comments and feedback reviews likes shares and all the rest so uh, please uh, be in contact with us, and we'll uh, we'll we'll be continuing this uh, podcast journey. Um, it's been rewarding and fun, and uh, and so until next time, thank you very much for for listening, and uh, we will talk with you soon. Bye bye, everybody. Bye.